0: This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit garynorth.com slash free books to download this book in PDF format. By This Standard The Authority of God's Law Today by Greg L. Bonson. Published by the Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas. Copyright 1985. Chapter 1 Specification of Purpose and Position. Quote, Over against the autonomous ethical philosophies of men, where good and evil are defined by sinful speculation, the Christian ethic gains its character and direction from the revealed Word of God. End quote. Throughout the history of the Christian Church, believers have asked what their attitude should be toward the commandments of God that are revealed in the Old Testament. A large variety of positions have been taken regarding God's law. Stretching all the way from saying that there have been no changes in how the law should be observed, so that, for instance, animal sacrifices would be continued, to saying that everything has been changed because of the change of dispensation, so that the Christian ethic is totally restricted to the New Testament. Between the two extreme poles, numerous other positions or attitudes, some pronomian, some antinomian, can be found with subtle variations distinguishing one school of thought from another in many cases. Against the background of this welter of opinions, it would be well to specify and summarize the position regarding God's law which is taken in these chapters. The Basic Thesis Fundamental to the position taken herein is the conviction that God's special revelation, His written word, is necessary as the objective standard of morality for God's people. Over against the autonomous ethical philosophies of men, where good and evil are defined by sinful speculation, the Christian ethic gains its character and direction from the revealed Word of God, a revelation which harmonizes with the general revelation made of God's standards through the created order in man's conscience. When we explore what the Bible teaches about this character of God, the salvation accomplished by Christ, the work of the Holy Spirit in making us holy in heart and conduct, or the nature of God's covenantal dealings with men, we see why the believer should take a positive attitude toward the commandments of God, even as revealed in the Old Testament. Indeed, the Bible teaches that we should presume continuity between the ethical standards of the New Testament and those of the Old, rather than abbreviating the validity of God's law according to some preconceived and artificial limit because he did not come to abrogate the Old Testament, and because not one stroke of the law will become invalid until the end of the world, Jesus declared, Therefore, whoever breaks one of these least commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew five seventeen 17-19 Given this instruction, our attitude must be that all Old Testament laws are presently our obligation unless further revelation from the lawgiver shows that some change has been made. The methodological point then is that we presume our obligation to obey any Old Testament commandment unless the New Testament indicates otherwise. We must assume continuity with the Old Testament rather than discontinuity. This is not to say that there are no changes from the Old to New Testament. Indeed, there are important ones. However, the Word of God must be the standard which defines precisely what those changes are for us. We cannot take it upon ourselves to assume such changes or read into them. Read them into the New Testament. God's word, his direction to us, must be taken as continuing in its authority until God himself reveals otherwise. This is, in a sense, the heart of covenant theology over against a dispensational understanding of the relation between Old and New Testaments. To this methodological point, we can add the substantive conclusion that the New Testament does not teach any radical change in God's law regarding the standards of socio-political morality. God's law, as it touches upon the duty of civil magistrates, has not been altered in any systematic or fundamental way in the New Testament. Consequently, instead of taking a basically antagonistic view of the Old Testament commandments for society and the state, and instead of taking a smorgasbord approach of picking and choosing among those laws on a basis of personal taste and convenience— we must recognize the continuing obligation of civil magistrates to obey and enforce the relevant laws of the Old Testament, including the penal sanctions specified by the just judge of all the earth. As with the rest of God's law, we must presume continuity of binding authority regarding the sociopolitical commandments revealed as standing law in the Old Testament. Discontinuity, change, has not been denied. What has been said above is simply that the presumption should be that an Old Testament law is binding in the New Testament. This does not in any way preclude or reject many radical differences between the Old and New Testaments. Changes do indeed come through the course of redemptive history, so that there certainly are exceptions to the general continuity that characterizes the relation between Old and New Covenants. God has the right to make alterations for the New Age. In the transition to this New Age, we observe that advances are made over the Old Covenant, with some laws laid aside and some laws observed in a new fashion. Given the progress of Revelation, we must be committed to the rule that the New Testament should interpret the Old Testament for us. The attitude of Jesus and the apostles to the Mosaic Law, for instance, must be determinative of Christian ethic. Thus, a simplistic equation between the Old and New Testament ethics, one that abstractly absolutizes the New Testament teaching about continuity with the Old Testament, not recognizing qualifications revealed elsewhere, is not advanced by the position taken here. What is maintained is that our obligation to God's Old Testament law should be interpreted and qualified by the New Testament Scripture, not by relative human opinion which can cite no biblical warrant for departing from God's stipulations. It should be recognized that certain aspects of the Old Covenant are not authoritative today. For instance, in addition to the standing laws by which the Jews were always to live, God gave certain localized imperatives to them, commands for specified use in one concrete situation, not principles with the continuing force of law from generation to generation. An example would be the command to go to war and gain the land of Palestine by the sword. This is not an enduring requirement for us today. Likewise, there were cultural details mentioned in many of God's laws so as to illustrate the moral principle which he required. For example, the distinction between accidental manslaughter and malicious murder was illustrated in terms of a flying axe head. What is of permanent moral authority is the principle illustrated and not the cultural detail used to illustrate it. Thus we ought not to read the case laws of the Old Testament as binding us to the literal wording utilized. For example, flying sickle blades and faulty car brakes are also covered by the law dealing with the flying axe head. In addition to localized imperatives and cultural details of expression, we would note that certain administrative details of Old Testament society are not normative for today. For example, the type or form of government, the method of tax collecting, the location of the capital. These aspects of Old Testament life were not prescribed by standing law and they do not bind us today. Other discontinuities with Old Testament life and practices would pertain to the typological foreshadows in the Old Testament replaced according to the New Testament with the realities they typified. For instance, we have the ceremonial laws of sacrifice which served during the Old Testament as weak and beggarly, shadows of the perfect sacrifice of Christ which was to come. We can also think here of the provisions regarding the land of Palestine. With the coming and establishment of that kingdom typified by the promised land, and with the removal of special kingdom privileges from the Jews by Christ, The laws regulating aspects of the land of Canaan, for example, family plots, location of cities of refuge, the liberate institution, have been laid aside in the New Testament as inapplicable. Other examples could perhaps be given, but enough has been said by now to demonstrate the point that the position taken herein is not that every last detail of Old Testament life must be reproduced today as morally obligatory, but simply that our presumption must be that of continuity with the standing laws of the Old Testament, when properly contextually interpreted. We need to be sensitive to the fact that interpreting the Old Testament law, properly categorizing its details, for example ceremonial, standing, cultural, and making modern day applications of the authoritative standards of the Old Testament, is not an easy or simple task. It is not always readily apparent to us to know how to understand an Old Testament commandment or use it properly today. So, the position taken here does not make everything in Christian ethics a simple matter of looking up obvious answers in a code book. Much hard thinking, exegetical, and theological homework, is entailed by a commitment to the position advocated in these studies. What is not being attempted or advocated? The aim of these studies is to set forth a case in favor of the continuing validity of the Old Testament law, including its socio-political standards of justice. It is advocated that we should presume the abiding authority of any Old Testament commandment until and unless the New Testament reveals otherwise, and this presumption holds just as much for laws pertaining to the state as for laws pertaining to the individual. As already noted, Such a presumption does not deny the reality of some discontinuities with the Old Testament today. It simply insists that such changes be warranted by biblical teaching, not by untrustworthy personal feeling or opinion. So then, the position taken here does not pretend to be a total view of Christian ethics, touching on its many facets. Only one perspective in Christian ethics is taken up, namely the normative perspective dealing with the question of standards for conduct motivational and consequential perspectives touching on inner character and goal in ethics are not equally treated nor is the vital area of producing and maintaining moral behavior moreover the one aspect of ethics which is the focus of attention in these studies the question of law is presented with a view toward avoiding certain serious errors that can be made about god's law obedience to god's law is not the way a person gains justification in the eyes of god Salvation is not by meritorious works, but rather by grace through faith. And while the law may be a pattern of holy living for sanctification, the law is not the dynamic power which enables obedience on the part of God's people. Rather, the Holy Spirit gives us new life and strength to keep God's commandments. The externalistic interpretation of God's law, which characterized the Pharisees, is also repudiated herein. The demands made by God extend to our hearts and attitudes so that true obedience must stem from a heart of faith and love. It is not found simply in outward conformity to part of His law. What these studies present is a position in Christian normative ethics. They do not logically commit those who agree with them to any particular school of eschatological interpretation. Premillennialists, amillennialists, and postmillennialists can all harmonize this normative perspective with their views of history and God's kingdom. While the author has definite views in eschatology, they are not the subject matter of these studies, either explicitly or implicitly. It can be added that the ethical position taught here is of a foundational character. It deals with a fundamental issue, the validity of God's law, and does not answer all questions about detailed application of God's law to our modern world. The specific interpretation of God's commandments is not taken up and discussed at length. Indeed, those who agree with the foundational conclusion of these studies, that God's law is binding today unless Scripture reveals otherwise, may very well disagree among themselves over particular matters in interpreting what God's law demands at this or that point, or that may disagree over how these demands should be followed today. These studies do not aim to settle such matters. They simply argue that God's law cannot be ignored in making decisions in Christian ethics. To say this is not to endorse every abuse that has been or is being made by believers regarding the requirements set forth in the Old Testament commandments. Furthermore, it should be observed that these studies do not advocate the imposition of God's law by force upon a society, as though that would be a way to bring in the kingdom. God's kingdom advances by means of the Great Commission, evangelism, preaching, and nurture in the word of God, and in the power of God's regenerating and sanctifying spirit. While these studies take a distinctive position regarding the law of God in the modern state, they do not focus upon a method of political change. The concern is rather with the standard of political justice. Thus it might be well to avert misconceptions here by repudiating any thought of the church taking up the sword in society, any thought of rebellion against the powers that be, and likewise any thought of mindless submission to the status quo in one society. Our commitment must be to the transforming power of God's word, which reforms all areas of life by the truth. Ignoring the need for sociopolitical reform or trying to achieve it by force both contradict the church's reformational responsibilities. Errors pertaining to the sociopolitical use of God's law can be discarded in advance here. Not all sins are crimes, and thus the civil magistrate is not obligated to enforce the entire law of God. Rulers should enforce only those laws for which God revealed social sanctions to be imposed, not matters of private conscience or personal piety. It is obvious that not all political leaders are, in fact, seeking to guide their deliberations and actions by the revealed law of God. What these studies contend is that magistrates ought to submit to the law of God for political affairs they will answer to God ultimately for their disobedience to his standards. Of course, when magistrates do come to the decision to enforce the commandments of God in a particular area, whether because they have personally been converted, or whether they simply see the wisdom and justice of those laws as unbelievers, they are obliged to do so in a proper and fair manner. The Christian does not advocate ex post facto justice, Whereby offenders are punished for offenses committed prior to the civil enactment of a law prohibiting their actions. Nor does the Christian advocate the punishment of criminals who have not been convicted under the full provisions of due process in a court of law. Those who believe that God's law for society ought to be obeyed must be concerned that all of God's laws for society be obeyed, touching not only the punishment of offenders, but their just treatment and conviction as well. Finally, we must distance ourselves from the mistaken impression that because these studies pay attention to a particular subsection of Christian theology and ethics, they tend to portray that area of the truth as more important than other areas of biblical teaching. All discussion will of necessity narrowly consider one topic instead of another, for not everything can be discussed simultaneously. To write about the virgin birth, for instance, is not to offer a slight to the doctrine of Christ's coming again. It is merely to take up one of many important matters of Christian theology. Likewise, to set forth a position regarding the validity of God's Old Testament law, and to argue that its standards of political justice bind us today, so that civil magistrates ought to enforce the law's penal sanctions, is to focus attention on just one aspect of the total picture of Christian theology and ethics. It is not to say that the most important emphasis in our lives and thinking should be the Old Testament law of Moses. It is not to say that political ethics is more vital than personal ethics, or that the cultural mandate is more crucial than the evangelistic mandate of the church. And it most certainly is not to contend that capital punishment is the most significant topic in Christian ethics, or even in Christian social ethics. By taking up a study of the Mosaic Law and the validity of its penal sanctions, we are simply pointing out that these are aspects of biblical teaching Indeed, aspects which serve a beneficial purpose, and as such are included in God's revealed word, and should not be misunderstood or ignored in deciding what the whole Bible has to say to us about our lives, conduct, and attitudes. By paying attention to the question of God's law and Christian ethics, we are simply being consistent with the Reformed conviction that our Christian beliefs should be guided by sola scriptura and tota scriptura, only by scripture and by all of scripture.